Welcome to the Head to the Bar podcast. What you're about to hear is provided for general information purposes and support only, and it's not legal education, and it's certainly not legal advice. You should independently check the details that we're just about to discuss. In today's discussion, we're going to start looking at the laws and principles of sentencing. This will probably take more than one session and the objective for the first discussion is to have a look at the examinable legislative provisions, all of which are in the Sentencing Act. And once we've finished that discussion, we'll move on to other common law principles that are relevant to the exercise of the sentencing discretion. Considering the sentencing hearing and how that's organised and how matters are taken into account. And lastly, how a plea in mitigation is presented and how reasons for decision are compiled. In past papers, the way that sentencing is examined can either be specific, so you might be asked, for instance, about a community correction order and what optional conditions might be imposed on such an order suitable to the circumstances of the case, and or you can be asked to compile the factors that are relevant to sentencing in the circumstances that are given in the paper and having regard to uh, the principles of sentencing that apply in the circumstances of the case. So what you'll eventually need to do is develop that sensitivity for which circumstances of the offence are taken into account, which circumstances of the offender are taken into account, and then you have regard to the relevant legislative provisions, relevant propositions at common law and other sentencing principles and then come to a realistic conclusion as to what sentence might be imposed or the structure that um, might be assumed. All right, enough introduction. We've got so many legislative provisions to get through, so we'll get started. Now, this discussion is intended as a companion to the legislation itself. There aren't any notes. It's a bit difficult to summarise each of these provisions. There will be notes provided in relation to the next discussion, which is more um, of a synthesis and how it all comes together. But for the moment, you'll need to open your Sentencing Act. There's a risk that if the provisions are summarised, that they might be simplified. And in that um, process, we might be something that's important. So the first examinable provision relates to part one of the Sentencing Act, not all of it, just the purposes. So section one of the Sentencing Act outlines the purposes of the legislative part of the law of sentencing. And you can have a look at those, but the objectives relate to promoting consistency, uh, to have within the one act all general provisions dealing with the powers of courts. Can I, I'll pause there and mention that sentencing is not a code. It is informed substantially by the common law and by, of course, the intuitive synthesis. So this is uh, the compilation of the legislative provisions that relate to sentencing. It's not to exclude the common law. And you'll see that the process of providing fair procedures for imposing sentences and for dealing with offenders who might breach the terms and conditions of their sentence and the other collateral purposes an introduction that we'll keep coming back to is ensuring that offenders are only punished to the extent justified by the nature and gravity of the offending degree, sorry, culpability and degree of responsibility for the offence, the presence of any aggravating or mitigating factors concerning the offender and of any other relevant circumstances. For those who have no background in criminal law, a sentencing is a good place to start. One of the common law principles that we'll come back to is proportionality and the general proposition that each sentence imposed must be proportionate overall to the circumstances of the offence and the circumstances of the offender. 
when it comes to characterising the circumstances of the offence, these are some of the matters that are taken into account, helpfully itemised in Section 1, and it's D, 4A, B and C, nature and gravity of the offences, culpability and degree of responsibility and the presence of any aggravating or mitigating factors. For those with a background in crime, this is perhaps nothing new. For those who have never set foot in a criminal court, please note the reference to aggravating or mitigating factors concerning the offender. There will be factors which aggravate the gravity of the offence or might mitigate the gravity of the offence. There will also be factors that aggravate or mitigate the offender's background, character and personal circumstances. So it's a little early to start compiling all of the information, but they're really what we're looking to speak to at the very end of the discussion, probably in the next session. So to try to be able to organise and characterise the gravity of the offence and the personal circumstances of the accused. When might you refer to those principles? That is Section 1 of the Sentencing Act. Uncommonly, this is really just to inform the discussion that's about to follow. Now, part two is examinable far more acutely and the relevant provisions that we need to have regard to are 5, 6 and 6 triple A. So section five of the Sentencing Act outlines the purposes for which sentence may be imposed. This is one that must be referred to in your uh, compilation of a plea in mitigation or of reasons for sentence. So the starting point is 5.1. The only purposes for which sentence may be imposed are, and here I'm summarising, punishment, deterrence, either specific to deter the offender or general to deter other persons from committing offences of the same or a similar character. Next is rehabilitation. Next is denunciation. And finally, 5.1e, community protection. And F is a combination of two or more of these purposes. So note, please, that sentence may be imposed to punish and denounce the behaviour. Sentence may be imposed to deter the accused and others, and sentence may be imposed to rehabilitate the accused. If your brief is to present the plea in mitigation of penalty, then, of course, rehabilitation is going to be a factor to which you must have regard, particularly if the accused has some physical or mental health or other vulnerability. Now, moving on to the other relevant provisions of Section 5, and it's not an exhaustive list, I'll just point out some of the relevant ones. 5.2ab was that factor um, which allowed a court to impose a less severe sentence because of an undertaking given by the accused to assist after sentencing. You may remember this in relation to criminal procedure where we talked about appeals by the prosecution where an accused has failed to comply with an undertaking to assist. 5.2ab was that mechanism um, for the discount to have its effect. 5.2 is another acutely relevant provision. So these are the matters to which the court must have regard in imposing sentence and we can um, compile these in a logical way by the end of the second discussion. So some of these relate to the offence such as 5.2a, maximum penalty prescribed for the offence, standard sentence if any for the offence, current sentencing practices, nature and gravity of the offence. Then we move on to factors that relate to the accused and the victim. 
So D is the offender's culpability and degree of responsibility. The victim, DAAA, the impact on the of the offence on any victim of the offence, the personal circumstances of any victim of the offence, any injury, loss or damage resulting directly from the offence. And then back to circumstances of the accused, procedurally and personally, whether the offender pleaded guilty to the offence and if so, the stage of the proceedings where that happened, the offender's previous character and the presence of any aggravating or mitigating factors concerning the offender or of any other relevant circumstances. Now, in an exam scenario, you may not have time to itemise each of those by reference to their provision, but that will set out the framework of your analysis of a sentencing question. Circumstances of the victim, if known, procedural matters such as plea of guilty, which is a significant mitigating factor, particularly if it's accompanied by remorse, and then the offender's personal circumstances. Continuing on, you can have a look uh, at each of the provisions that follows in section five, and ultimately, you'll see that this is a, a constellation of many different uh, procedural matters that follow in the Sentencing Act and in other associated legislation. Now, we move on to Section 6, but Section 5 has been helpful, although it may look like it's overly complicated. We'll refer back to Section 5 for structure and for closing principles when it comes time to prepare those pleas in mitigation of penalty or set out reasons for sentence. Circumstances of the offence, transitional, victim, procedural matters, circumstances of the offender, and it has set out relevant sentencing purposes which need to be analysed in your scenario if you're presenting a plea or writing reasons for sentence. Now, note that the next examinable provision is Section 6. So we actually overlook the standard sentence scheme, 5A, for noting and in practice. This arises reasonably often, um, but if, it, if a court is sentencing the accused for a standard sentence offence, which are often some of the more serious uh, offences, and this is a relatively new suite of provisions, the standard sentence, it is said, is 40% of the, of the maximum available for the um, sentence. Happily, perhaps for you, not examinable, and in real life it does come up quite often. Section 6 is the next examinable provision, and you would include this eventually um, in your analysis of the accused personal circumstances. So section six relates to the determination of the offender's character. In determining the character of an offender, the court may consider amongst other things, A is the number, seriousness, date, relevance and nature of any previous findings of guilt or convictions of the offender and general reputation and any significant contributions made by the offender to the community. So if your client has some previous history, that is going to have to be one of the matters that you address when summarising relevant circumstances, uh, sorry, circumstances relevant to sentence. The absence of any previous findings of guilt or convictions or the absence of previous similar findings of guilt or convictions you might submit would weigh substantially in favour of the offender. And general reputation and significant contributions are often dealt with in practice via the uh, character references and other um, matters that can be submitted to the court as demonstrating good character aside from the circumstances of the offence. 
The High Court has told us that when it comes to assessing previous character, you do so prior to the date of commission of the offence. So for those who don't have background in crime, um, you can't talk yourself out of relying on good character by reason that the accused is perhaps admitting guilt to a serious offence because the character is uh, evaluated prior to the date of the commission of the offence to which you're pleading guilty or are being sentenced. 6 A is the last of the relevant examinable provisions in Part 2, and that obliges a court who imposes a less severe sentence as a result of a plea of guilty to give an indication as to what the sentence and non-parole period would have been but for the plea of guilty. Um, this only arises where the uh, accused is sentenced to, I'm oversimplifying, but a term of imprisonment, a community corrections order for a period of two years or more, or a significant fine. So if the court imposes such a disposition, the court then goes on under Section 6 AAA to provide a declaration of the sentence that would otherwise have been passed but for that plea of guilty. And it's one of the maxims of sentencing and of trial procedure that it doesn't aggravate penalty uh, if the accused has pleaded not guilty, of course not, but the court does afford a discount for the plea of guilty and in turn the stage at which that plea is entered. That was one of the matters alluded to in Section 5. So if in the circumstances of the exam or in real life your client has entered a plea of guilty and the disposition does involve that more onerous penalty, then the Section 6 AAA declaration will follow. The next examinable provision relates to custodial sentences. So we'll move to Part 3 of the Sentencing Act starting at Section 7. And in doing so, from an analytical standpoint, um, we avoid some of the more tricky provisions of the Sentencing Act, um, such as serious offender provisions, continuing criminal enterprises and so forth. They are difficult provisions, but arise also reasonably often in superior court practice. So in relation to Part 3, um, we start with Section 7. And the way that this works is that we talk about dispositions that may be impo imposed with conviction or without conviction if a custodial sentence is going to be imposed one way or another, where it is, whether it is under Section 7, a term of imprisonment or detention in a designated mental health service as a security patient or other, then each of those dispositions must be accompanied by a conviction. So then that probably makes good sense. An offender can't escape conviction if they're sentenced to imprisonment. That's not so if you move on uh, into the uh, further provisions of Section 7 in relation to a community correction order. Um, so as we learn from 1E, the court may with or without recording a conviction make a community correction order in relation to the offender or with or without a conviction order the offender to pay a fine or adjourn the hearing of the matter on conditions, which is known colloquially as a bond or discharge the offender with or without conviction. And though we'll come back to this in the next discussion where we talk about parsimony, essentially you can see that as the sentencing hierarchy, by which I mean that at the very top is the term of imprisonment and at the very base are the dispositions involving adjournment, 
discharge and dismissal. And the way that sentencing works, as we'll discuss, is that according to parsimony, we'll come back to section five in this regard, the court may not move on to the next level in the hierarchy unless it has considered and excluded as a suitable penalty the lower rung. So in other words, if the court cannot exclude the um, likelihood that a fine is a, an appropriate and proportionate penalty in all of the circumstances of the case, they can't then go on to proceed up to a community correction order if and only if they've excluded a fine as being a suitable penalty, could the court include a community correction order? So once again, for those who are completely new to the law of sentencing, you may wish to set that out and note the uh, each stage as being a step in that hierarchy, obviously with jail at the top. Section 8 of the Sentencing Act governs the court's decision whether or not to record a conviction. So here, following on from Section 7, this is one of the orders that must be considered if the court proceeds to record, for instance, an adjourned undertaking, a fine or a community correction order. Part of the evaluation will be whether a criminal conviction needs to follow or whether the order can be made without conviction. And this is also an intuitive uh, decision by the magistrate or by the judge. So having regard to the matters listed in Section 8. So you look to the nature of the offence, character and past history and the impact of the recording of a conviction on the offender's economic or social wellbeing or their employment prospects. So in the circumstances of a particular case, you might need to have regard to whether it's a serious example of the offence on the one hand and on the other, the accused is a person who relies on largely unblemished history for their employment prospects or social wellbeing or other responsibilities. If a person, for instance, was studying for the bar exam and had to satisfy an organisation that they were a fit and proper person, for instance, that would be a matter to which the court would need to have regard if the court hearing related to some offence um, having been committed by that person. So then we move on to Section 8A and collateral provisions. Um, 8A of the Sentencing Act permits the court to order a pre-sentence report. And it depends on the um, capacity of the organisation that are performing that assessment and producing the report as to whether the hearing would be adjourned or whether it could be stood down. As you may be aware, if the, an, a short assessment is being performed, for instance, for a community correction order, then the practice would be to adjourn the further hearing for an hour or for three hours so that that assessment can take place and then the person can be sentenced. So 8A uh, indicates the court may order a pre-sentence report and must order a pre-sentence report under 8A2 if it's considering making a community correction order, which is known as a CCO, a youth justice centre order or youth residential centre order. So it may establish the person's suitability for the order, establish that necessary facilities exist and if the order being considered is a CCO, gain advice concerning the most appropriate condition or conditions to be attached to the order. 
There's one significant exception in relation to the court's obligation to order a pre-sentence report, and that is if it's considering making a CCO with an unpaid community work condition being the only condition attached to the order and no more than 300 hours of unpaid community work, which is at the higher, highest end of the spectrum of work orders traditionally made in combination with a community corrections order. So turning to the circumstances that might be assessed, uh, in past papers, the most commonly assessed scenario that would precipitate a report is a CCO assessment. As we're looking at the Victorian Sentencing Act and not the Commonwealth sentencing scenario under the Commonwealth Crimes Act, you can take it for granted that it won't be a Commonwealth offence um, that would call for your discussion. And also the absence of reference to the Children and Young Persons Act, which uh, outlines sentences for persons before the Children's Court, which are different to those under the Sentencing Act, indicates that you'll be dealing with an offender who is at least 18 at the point of being sentenced. It doesn't preclude the ordering of youth justice centre orders or youth residential centre orders, but the community corrections order is the one that's usually and commonly examined. So 8B of the Sentencing Act, also examinable, talks about the contents of the pre-sentence report. And if, for instance, it was the Office of Corrections who were undertaking the report, then the author of that report might inquire and report back to the court about those matters that are listed, each of the first set of which relate to the personal circumstances and background of the accused, some of which may relate, for instance, to the suitability for, of the accused for certain orders. So having a look at 8B, C. And this is actually a very good summary of personal circumstances for those who don't have a background in crime. When it comes to summarising personal circumstances, you might want to include this as part of your checklist as well. So age, social history and background, medical and psychiatric history, alcohol, drug and any other substance history, educational background, employment history, their priors and other dispositions um, that have been imposed in the past and how they've gone and also their um, capacity to pay a fine and other special needs. The author of the report may also be able to express a view in relation to the availability of services that may address the risk of recidivism and courses, programs, treatment therapy or other assistance that could be available to the accused. So 8B, though it doesn't appear to be acutely examinable on its face, uh, is actually a very good uh, way of putting together a checklist as to the matters into which the court would normally inquire in any sentencing hearing. So even if a report wasn't obtained, they're the types of matters that uh, you would be speaking to as an advocate to give the court the full picture about the accused background and personal circumstances and help the court come to a conclusion as to the appropriate sentence. 8E allows the court to order a drug and alcohol assessment report if the court's considering making a community corrections order and the court is satisfied that the accused had a drug or alcohol dependency that contributed to the offender's criminal behaviour. Have a look at the rest of the provision to see the contents of that report and the sorts of matters that um, are addressed and may be considered by the court to be significant.
Our next examinable provision is 8K, which allows the victim of an offence to make a victim impact statement, which the court may take into account for the purpose of, of uh, determining sentence. So you may remember from the discussion in particular of Section 5 that uh, a number of the heads that the court may take into account must take into account if the information is known is the effect of the particular offence on the victim, nature and circumstances of the victim, and in other cases, loss or damage that may have resulted to a victim of an offence separate to the types of matters that are about to be addressed. So this may be through the mechanism of a victim impact statement, or it may be from the depositions or the police brief or the other information that's known to the magistrate or judge. So if a victim elects to, they can make a statement to the court for the purpose of assisting the court in determining sentence. This is the victim impact statement. It's in writing by statutory declaration, which can be supplemented by evidence. And in some circumstances, it can be made by another person on behalf of the victim. 8L identifies what can be included in the victim impact statement. So C8L1, particulars of the impact of the offence on the victim and of any injury, loss or damage suffered by the victim as a direct result of the offence. And have a look through the rest of that provision. It can include photographs, drawings or poems or other material that describe that impact. And if you see section 8L3, from time to time, the victim may include an opinion or a description about injury, loss or damage that is not suffered by them as a direct result of the offence. 8L3 and following indicates that the court may rule as inadmissible the whole or any part of a victim impact statement. And if you see 8L4 post-2018, it's the intention of Parliament that even if the victim includes inadmissible material in the victim impact statement, then that doesn't necessarily invalidate the entire document. So on that basis, the court may take into account the relevant and admissible parts and may disregard any inadmissible parts without the whole victim impact statement being rendered inadmissible as a result. The next examinable provision is 8Q. A person who has made a victim impact statement can request that any part of that victim impact statement be read aloud or displayed in the course of the hearing. It can be read by the victim or a person chosen by the victim, or it can be read by the prosecutor. So see the um, balance of that provision in particular in relation to the reading of inadmissible material. Moving on then to section nine, and um, now we're starting to get to the, the mathematics of how to impose sentence and the various sentences that can be imposed. When it comes to custodial sentences, section nine permits, and this assumes that there are, is more than one charge on the charge sheet that is proceeding, more than one charge on the indictment. Generally, in Victoria, the courts prefer, or certainly the superior courts prefer to impose individual proportionate sentences on each charge. And the Sentencing Act bears out that aggregate sentences, which is where one sentence is passed globally in relation to more than one offence, can only be imposed in certain circumstances. So the preference is separate individual and proportionate sentences. Um, but under Section 9, 
if there's a conviction for two or more offences, and here's the, the um, enabling part of Section 9, which are founded on the same facts or form or are part of a series of offences of the same or a similar character, the court may impose an aggregate sentence of imprisonment in respect of those offences in place of a separate sentence of imprisonment in respect of all or any two or more of them. There are some exclusions, some of which relate to unexaminable provisions. So where the accused is a serious offender, where they're being sentenced for standard sentence offences and so forth. The heart of Section 9 is that it only enables that aggregate in that fixed circumstance founded on the same facts. So it could be that um, an accused is convicted of a, a burglary followed immediately by a theft where the intent to steal for the burglary is in relation to that particular item that's then stolen. That might be a scenario where the two offences are founded on the same facts or it could be where they form or are part of a series of offences or the same of a same or similar character. So the burglary and theft is one example of that. Or it could be, for instance, the accused committed of a spree of burglaries committed over a short period of time. They're the sorts of vehicles that would give rise to the capacity of the court to impose an aggregate sentence. As soon as we start moving away from that characterisation of the same or similar character, then there's a problem with respect to capacity to impose an aggregate. So, for instance, if the accused drove disqualified on the way to committing a burglary, at that point we start moving away from the uh, nexus to Section 9 because it's hard to see why driving disqualified is part of a series of offences of the same or a similar character as the eventual commission of a burglary. You could keep tinkering with those circumstances. Could it be the driving whilst disqualified of a stolen car um, to a burglary? In real life, um, there are any number of circumstances that will give rise to uh, variations on that theme. But the conservative view in relation to aggregates is that they should be imposed in an un not an unusual case, but a rather straightforward case rather than extending that definition. The next examinable provision is Section 11 of the Sentencing Act, fixing of non-parole period by sentencing court. And happily, this is relatively straightforward. So this arises where a court sentences an offender to imprisonment, either for life or, more commonly, for a term of two years or more. Now, if the court sentences the accused to two years or more, which is um, the standard event rather than life, the court must, as part of the sentence, fix a period during which the offender is not eligible to be released on parole unless it considers the nature of the offence or the past history of the offender make the fixing of such a period inappropriate. So two years or more, so even if it were 24 months, the court must then fix a period that is at least six months less than the head sentence, C11 subsection 3, at least six months less, which is the minimum period that the accused must serve before they become eligible to apply for parole. So we're now going to introduce the terminology and cement it down. So if the sentence passed were two years with 18 months to serve, the two years is referred to as the head sentence. The 18 months is referred to as the non-parole period. 
And the decision whether or not the accused is granted parole is a decision for the parole board in the proper exercise of the executive's consideration rather than judicial consideration. So the minimum period then is the minimum period before they first become eligible to apply for parole. And the court has no business in making recommendations one way or another as to whether the accused is paroled. That is a matter purely for executive consideration. Note that that does not apply, section 11, subsection 2A, if the court imposes a combination sentence of imprisonment plus a community correction order, which we're not likely to start looking at until the next discussion. So, uh, but just to foreshadow, one of the dispositions that a court may impose is a combination of two dispositions, jail followed by a community correction order. The limitation is no more than 12 months further sentence at the date of sentence. So if the accused is not in custody at the point of sentence, the court could impose 12 months plus a community correction order. If they have already been in custody in pre-sentence detention for, say, six months, the court could impose 18 months plus a community correction order. But what they may not do, let's say that the pre-sentence plus 12 months adds up to two years, the court could impose two years plus a CCO if the, uh, the accused pre-sentence detention was 12 months plus 12 months from the date of sentence. And that would normally trigger the fixing of a non-parole period by the sentencing court under section 11, except that 11 subsection uh, 2A indicates the court doesn't then go on to set a minimum period. It's just the 24 months plus a CCO. 11A relates to the fixing of non-parole period for standard sentence offence. I will hazard a guess that this has been included in the interests of over-inclusivity because we've been told specifically that the standard sentence provisions are not examinable. So it would be peculiar if you then needed to consider the non-parole period for standard sentence offences. I'll leave that in your collective and capable hands to resolve the anomaly. Next is section 16, and this introduces the more commonly invoked mechanism for achieving a total effective sentence than aggregate sentences. So in Victoria, I've indicated that because aggregate sentences can only be applied in sparing circumstances, the more commonly invoked mechanism for achieving a disposition over multiple sentences is that individual proportionate sentences are set for each crime. So let's say, uh, continuing from the example I gave earlier, the accused is charged with driving whilst disqualified on the way to committing a burglary. And hypothetically, the circumstances of the offence and the circumstances of the offender may lead a court to conclude that 12 months imprisonment is appropriate for the driving whilst disqualified and that 18 months imprisonment is appropriate for the burglary. Section 16 then allows for certain assumptions and mechanisms with respect to the question whether there must be some degree of accumulation of the 12 months and the 18 months. The way that section 16 works is this. Subject to what follows, every term of imprisonment imposed on a person by a court must, unless otherwise directed by the court, be served concurrently with any other sentences, whether before or at the same time as that term. 
So if the judge was silent at that point and 12 months and 18 months were imposed, the total effective sentence that the accused would be obliged to serve would be 18 months imprisonment. But having regard to the totality principle of sentencing, which is one of those common law principles we'll come back to in the next discussion, the learned judge might then conclude that because they are separate offences, um, though committed at a similar point in time, but different victims, different um, regimes of uh, purpose, three months of the sentence imposed of the 12 months should be served cumulatively with the 18 months. Now that allows for um, the court, so section 16 then allows for the court to direct that three months of the sentence imposed on the, um, usually on the shorter count, be then served cumulatively upon the longer order. So there the sentence imposed by the court would be 12 months on the first charge, 18 months on the second charge, that would be the base, the, usually the longer one, three months of the sentence imposed on charge one be served cumulatively upon the sentence imposed on charge two. There are certain exceptions to this presumption of concurrency, see section 16, 1A and following. Note, please, the end foreshadowing a discussion to come. I've mentioned the principle of proportionality, which is the idea that each individual sentence in the intuitive synthesis should be proportionate to the circumstances of the offence and of the offender. Likewise, the totality principle of sentencing. So once all individual dispositions have been handed down and any orders for cumulation have been managed, the total effective sentence, and on the scenario I just described, it might be 21 months imprisonment, the total effective sentence should also be proportionate to the overall criminality of the offending. So in Victoria, unlike, as you may see in news reports from the US, where there are entirely cumulative life sentences in Victoria, and having regard to the fact that we have truth in sentencing, the trial judge, uh, the sentencing judge strives to ensure that the last look leads to a, a total effective sentence that is proportionate overall. We're nearly at the end of these introductory provisions that relate to sentences, and then we'll take a break. Section 18 allows for the deduction of pre-sentence detention. So section 18, one, if an offender is in respect of an offence sentenced to a term of imprisonment or to a period of detention in an approved mental health service under a hospital security order, then any period during which they were held in custody in relation to proceedings for the offence or proceedings arising from those proceedings, including any period pending in the determination of an appeal, so I'll speak to you about the difference in a moment, must be reckoned as a period of imprisonment or detention already served under the sentence unless the sentencing court otherwise orders. There are some exceptions which I'll get to in a moment. So let's return to the scenario of our driver followed by burglar. Um, we have an accused who drove disqualified and then committed a burglary and the learned sentencing judge has imposed 12 months on the, the drive disqualified and 18 months on the burglary with an order for partial accumulation leading to 21 months. And after inquiry, it turns out that the accused has spent 120 days in custody between the day of their arrest and the day of sentence. 
part of the order that the judge then imposes is that 120 days imprisonment are reckoned as served. So when the accused then asks, well, what did I get? The answer is 21 months, but the practicality is less 120 days because you've already served that. The principal exception in all of the provisions that follow, which you'll need to have a look at, is of course, if the accused is already under sentence. So if those days are not genuinely seen as pre-sentence detention, but are seen as service of another uh, term of imprisonment, then they don't count. And the difference with 18.1b, which is proceedings arising from those proceedings, is let's say that the 21 months were imposed less 120 days and the accused, disappointed with that result, appealed, possibly unsuccessfully, and another 50 days were added before the hearing of the appeal. The Court of Appeal, let's say, granted leave but refused um, leave to appeal or allowed it in part, would then reckon 170 days reckoned as served and not just the 120 days. So that we'll then jump forward to sections 32 to 35 of the Sentencing Act before taking a break. And then in the next discussion, we will come back to the provisions relating acutely to community corrections orders, to fines, to other orders, ancillary orders, mentally ill offenders and miscellaneous provisions to be followed by, as I've mentioned, this, the uh, summary of how it all comes together. And the reason why I'm going into the minutiae is, as I've suggested in the past, there may be a question, whether it's a multiple choice question or a short answer question that relates to a specific disposition. So most of what I'm talking about is not going to be relevant to the answer to your problem, but somewhere contained within this detail may be the answer to a question that's asked. Section 32 and the next batch of provisions to 35 relate to youth justice centres or youth residential centre orders. Now here we're not talking about children because if the offender was a child, they would be going to the um, children's court. We're talking about an accused who is 18 years or over, but a young offender for the purpose of section 32. And if you click on that uh, definition, you'll see that that's a person who at the time of being sentenced is under the age of 21 years. So it's an accused who's 18, 19 or 20 proceeding before the magistrate's court or the county court. So have a look at those provisions and you'll see that if the court is considering possibly instead of imprisonment, making a youth justice centre order or a youth residential centre order, then the court must order a pre-sentence report and form the view that the court believes there are reasonable prospects for the rehabilitation of the young offender or form a view that it believes that the young offender is particularly impressionable, immature or likely to be subjected to undesirable influences in an adult prison. So there needs to be that primary finding that either the young offender has reasonable prospects for rehabilitation or that they're particularly impressionable, immature or likely to be subjected to undesirable influences in an adult prison. If one of those findings is made in the court's belief, then the court may choose to impose a youth justice centre order or a youth residential centre order rather than adult prison, even though there is adult prison available. 
and 32.2 in determining whether to make one of those orders the court must have regard to the nature of the offence and the age, character and past history of a young offender. Note the last relatively unusual scenario in which the court may consider such an order for even a person younger than 18 would be if there was a, a, uh, an allegation of the youth committing a, a fairly unusual serious indictable offence and the children's court finding it, had, it refused to exercise its jurisdiction in relation to that scenario. But because the children and Young Persons Act is not being assessed in your bar exam, don't worry about that scenario. I just mention it for the sake of completeness. You'll see from 32.3 that if Youth Justice Centre or Youth Residential Centre is imposed, there is a jurisdictional limit of two years if the court is the magistrate's court and four years if the court is the county or supreme court. So see the following provisions. Note 32A allows an aggregate sentence of detention in relation to a young offender. And you can have a look at um, the uh, provisions that follow. Note in relation to sentences of detention imposed on a young offender and presumptions of concurrency rather than cumulation in section 33. So that except in certain circumstances, you can revise those. Next is section 34, uh, commencement of sentences is generally the day that the detention is imposed, except in uh, the circumstances in, uh, that are more complex, cumulative sentences, sorry, cumulative periods of detention are more complicated, or if the young offender is apprehended under a warrant to detain, then it starts on the date of detention. And the last provision that we look at is section 35, which relates to pre-sentence detention for a young offender in such a scenario. And so um, have a look at those provisions, but it permits and requires a calculation of pre-sentence detention for a young person under such a scenario as well. So that brings to an end our analysis of each of the um, Sentencing Act provisions up to our first bullet point, Sentences Custodial. We've done the hard work in relation to each of the other dispositions, though the minutiae is a little bit more complicated. The provisions are generally more straightforward. So in the next discussion, as mentioned, We'll go through each of those other parts that relates to particular and examinable scenarios. And finally, we will bring it all together and analyse how to present a plea in mitigation, how to organise reasons for sentence. Thank you for listening to the Head to the Bar podcast. For outlines, links to resources and other downloads, please refer to the show notes.